Juliet, it is such an honor to have you with us today. As the founder and director of Viva, you have become an incredible force for change within the vegan movement. We can't wait to talk more about all your amazing project and the role that Viva plays and all the inspiring campaigns that you've created. But we do always like to start the show with learning a bit more about our guests by asking what it was that led you to become vegan in the first place. Okay, so we're going back quite a while now. Um, I think probably the most dramatic story is when I went vegetarian, because I went vegetarian first, remembering that when I went vegetarian, nobody basically talked about it and literally no one at school was even vegetarian my parents were you know had no knowledge about it whatsoever and I became very aware of animals and their plights on very various issues and then heard about factory farming and started talking to people about it and somebody said well do you eat meat and I just thought good god because I was totally brought up to eat everything going and I was a determined little so-and-so so I <laughs> I was probably a right pain in the ass actually because with my parents I decided that I was going to go and see this firsthand thinking it was a relatively easy thing to do in my absolute naivety but I did manage through dogged determination pull it off and I went with um, an agricultural student and I saw one of the biggest farms in the UK which was back then in the middle of the UK and it was used for um, showcase actually so they had economists there who would talk to agricultural students but also from people around the world really advocating factory farming and taking factory farming to another level making it more intensive and so I went around with this economist talking about the excuses and reasons why female pigs were then in um, what were called sow stalls and um, throughout their pregnancy and you can imagine as somebody in their early teens how completely shocking this was um, and it was worse than any leaflet could have got across to me so I could feel it smell it see their suffering and when I walked out of the pig shed which where I had this literally had a guided tour um, I decided to try and see what was inside the other sheds and um, some of them were open or not open they were unlocked and I went through and I remember one of them was um, battery hens back then when they were still legal um, and there was like five rows of cages, as you know, in these huge sheds, very dark. And the other thing I remember, there's this cacophony of noise and I worked in, walked in, but just through me walking in and closing the door, the whole shed full of tens of thousands of birds went completely silent. And I walked along this row and saw all these dead birds just left in the cages with their cage mates. And of course it had a profound effect on me. And obviously I instantly went vegetarian at that point. Um, I didn't know that was the start of Viva, but obviously it was. And um, I was determined that my whole life would go down a pathway to save animals. I didn't, I had no idea how the hell I was going to do it. And in fact, after I did my degree, I chose zoology because it was the study of animals, um, thinking that may help me. And in fact, it has. But after I did the degree, I was like, do I do a PhD and become an academic? And I decided academics had really no influence. So I decided that I had to campaign and that was the route that I took and I became vegan through really the <clears throat> learning about all the facts and in, in a field outside a cow gave birth to twins which is quite unusual and the farmer came and took the babies away and I ran, literally physically ran after him and his farmhand and said what are you going to do with these calves and he said they're going for veal in Italy 
and I went inside the house and literally, you know, poured all the dairy with the milk down the sink and just took everything out and threw it out there and then. And of course, that was it. I was vegan. That's a very long time ago now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so, that's pretty confronting, isn't it? But what a, yeah. what a way to learn the truth of what happens. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's being exposed to the realities of factory farming at a young age like that, this surefire way to make a lifelong activist, like, wow it's um it makes me think when you say about the silence you know almost in horror films you know it, it's not really the horror for the human in that stage you know it's the chicken but it's that like silent period you know yeah. before the the monster strikes and yeah it's yeah. just wow it, you just story just just gets you in the gut it's um it's this sector of animal agriculture though is something that via focuses on rightly so and it's it's something that if it comes in a strange sphere within the eye of public perception as you know the general public seem to largely dislike it yet it's very little action upon you know mm. and as with many ad, ad, <laughs> things we advocate for here um so many people just find it too easy to remain disconnected from the realities of it over the years you fought to end this barbaric industry how have you seen the perception shift or change yeah it's changed a lot i mean when i started campaigning i was before even setting up viva i was um employed as youth education officer that was one of my inns at the vegetarian society um, which is based in the northwest of england um, and worked my way up I, I i campaigned with young people mainly teenagers i focused on and the impact you can have on teenagers just through telling them the truth is is quite phenomenal if you focus on that area but most organizations don't they completely ignore them and so i got a lot of experience in working with younger people of course i wasn't that much older than them which helped um, and then <clears throat> worked my way up, became campaigns director and then director of the Vegetarian Society and left to set up Beaver. Um, but this sounds really weird. It's kind of hard to believe even myself. I was the first person in the UK to actually campaign on vegetarianism. Um, at, <clears throat> um, because the Vegetarian Society, although it's an old organisation set up in Victorian times, it was really an information body. It had a big council that was almost all middle-aged to elderly men and it was very much just giving out information and um, rather than actively campaigning trying to make people change so when I did the first campaigns there it created quite a furore in the UK and I got publicity that you simply wouldn't see today just out of the novelty value out of what I was doing and good god how dare this woman do this you know <laughs> um uh, it, it was a bit like when I went to Australia trying to save the kangaroos. I got a similar kind of response. It was huge media across the board <laughs> for good and for bad, but it certainly got the kangaroo in this industry some um, spotlight in a bad way. So that was great. But it, it is kind of hard to believe when you think today how far we have come across the world in terms of those first campaigns on vegetarianism to now veganism becoming a norm um, where it was only... A handful of years ago where it was seen as extremism here and it, it's simply not anymore it's just the normal way to be and everybody knows a vegan when I started campaigning on vegetarianism people didn't you know I'd give um, talks at sort of clubs like the it's something called the lion club here um which tends to be again a very largely male domain but they give donations to certain causes and you can literally you could hear a pin drop when I would speak to them about what was going on in factory farms and they didn't really know how to take me at all um um through to today 
where you know fighting on these issues is seen as being really very positive thing to do and people largely accept as you just said they largely accept what you're saying the 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 challenge that we've all got is turning apathy into action because people are still brought up to eat everything that's there and it's changing habits of a lifetime because it is just a habit um, that is that is the challenge. It's not so much actually um, the fight on the issues anymore. People are much more accepting that what we say is true. Yeah, well, I mean, especially, you know, the, the way that you've been going about your investigations and, and getting it out there to, to the world, you know, they, they can't really deny it anymore, can they? I mean, they can't pretend it's not happening. But in your case, you, um, you found your voice for the animals at a, at a young age which yay <laughs> and yeah. um you've been part of, of many organizations and projects across the globe to to end the plight of animals with well, the rising young activists everywhere um have you got any advice for for new activists you know either young or old to help them build confidence in advocating yeah i i think i mean i can go back to kind of how i was at the beginning when i had little experience when i first did my first school talk in fact, I was thrown completely in the deep end um, for the first animal rights organisation I worked for, which was an anti-vivisection organisation in London. And nobody was, again, doing campaigning. And so I thought, and I wasn't employed as a campaigner. I was employed as a researcher because of my zoology degree. Um, but we were invited in to do a talk at um, um, a university where the students were 18 and 19 years old, about 200 of them. So it was a big talk to do as your first talk with no training whatsoever. <laughs> I just thought somebody's got to do this because it was a debate pro and um, against um, dissection in this case. And you had 10 minutes to fight your case, 10 minutes on the other side and then questions. So I was absolutely scared, you know what. And then... Um, <laughs> So I was on this sort of like very official, you know, stand with the podium and the microphone, a very good sound system. And I can remember thinking, oh, my God, my voice was like this all the way through <laughs> because I was so frightened. But I did it and I won by about 90 to 10, sort of 91 in terms of, you know, the votes. And I just thought, my God, if I can get through this and be thrown completely in the deep end, you know, you can, it kind of builds your confidence in the fact that you got through, you won. Um, people accepted I was nervous, that I didn't have any experience, but they knew my heart was in the right place and what I was saying was true. And that's what matters. And then, of course, you have to keep throwing yourself in the deep end. So I did school talks and it wasn't until the seventh, eighth, ninth, maybe that that, that, that kind of nerve started to dissipate. So you, you have to expose yourself to stuff. One of the ways I make myself do things um, is by just saying whatever I'm going through is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to what those animals are going through. And sometimes we'll even go deliberately put myself through seeing some of the investigations that we've done and looking in those pigs eyes to make me do something I don't really want to do. Um, that, that, that's a personal thing that that does motivate me and it does make me get a grip and think for god's sake what's the matter with you woman just get on with it <laughs> you know um so that's one way that that you know i kind of cope with doing things that maybe you feel nervous about i think the other thing is to give yourself a break and think actually you know there's many people around the world like you and many people who want to um support you in your ideas or want to brainstorm with you and of course now we have the glory of social media so 
and I'm just about to move towns and I just had a look on the new town I'm going to there's a already two very good Facebook groups for example so that's the thing I'd recommend is do network with people whatever the group is it might not quite be your cup of tea but there's probably somebody in there who is your tribe if you like and I'd, I'd encourage you to socialize and be bold and suggest what it is that you want to do and just get out there and do it because pretty much today anything almost anything goes just do it well that's some brilliant advice yeah, yeah. i really like that about you know when your heart's in the right place it, do, it doesn't matter if you, if you don't do perfectly on the first time you've got to keep going at it we still get a bit nervous sometimes it's a story of our life isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we're on, like, i think we've recorded about 40 odd episodes now um for this series and like we still get nervous you know we're about to click the admit button on the zoom room and stuff like that so it's just you just got to keep at it and yeah it's fantastic advice that you bring up there but you touched on as well your investigations and one of the many milestones of viva has been um your creation of the hogwood documentary and this investigation um on a warwickshire pig farm has gone on to not only affect individuals, but also entire supermarket chains and the way that they're sourcing their products. However, that was with a lengthy fight to get them on board um, and also multiple visits to the properties. And even um, they, someone tried making a sort of counter documentary. Um, yes. <laughs> but for our viewers who may not have seen this breathtaking film yet, um, can you give us a little insight into why you were at Hogwood in the first place? Yeah, I mean, we actually, um, in fact, it's very unusual, as you know, to be able to close down farms because it's it, it is just so difficult. The law is so weak when it comes to farmed animals. But we had just had a major impact on a Somerset farm, which we'd basically, you know, I won't go into it, but basically we had got it closed down. OK, and somebody came to us and said, actually, you know, it's a picnic on that farm compared to somewhere I've seen and my ears got obviously went up because the farm that we'd closed down was pretty bad and um so um they said go to Hogwood and um it's in Warwickshire which is near Stratford-upon-Avon you know Shakespeare country and so we I sent out basically an initial investigator just to see if what they were saying were true and it was much worse I was really shocked and I've seen a lot over the years um, there was a lot of dead adult pigs that had been pulled outside and were just dumped and dead and the conditions inside were horrific so I decided to launch a full investigation into it and that's when I went in and did the what we call the face-off campaign where I was actually talking to camera um, about what I was seeing so that was something Viva initiated in the UK because I'd always hidden behind the camera before that but what we found when I went in front of camera that we got much, much, much more engagement with um, people and it went to a far wider audience. So I did it again inside Hogwood and people were so shocked at what they found and so was I to the degree, I won't go into the detail because people, you know, don't want to hear all the cruelty. I'll just give one example of one pig where an ulceration had completely blackened and gone right through to the bone. And you're thinking, why would somebody leave an animal in this much pain? Why would they do that? You know, it takes a certain kind of mentality because, you know, you'd expect even if you ate meat and give all the excuses that people give, that an animal would be put out of their misery, you know, quickly. To leave an animal in that much pain that drags on the weeks into months takes a different kind of mentality. And that's what Hogwood was full of. 
And so I thought, in, again, you know, just from my experience over the years that Tesco, who we found out they supplied, Tesco is one of the biggest um, UK supermarkets, by the way, um, huge power in the UK. And so I thought they would withdraw. I just thought the footage is so bad. And they didn't. They dug their heels in and defended it. And so did Red Tractor, which is the accreditation scheme. And they dug their heels in. And also the National Pig Association, which is exactly as you imagine, the industry sort of um, um, farmer's body. They also, not, not only did they dig their heels in when we were doing the, a big press launch demonstration outside the farm and in Stratford-upon-Avon, um, they actually sent representatives to defend it. So I was like, whoa, what are we up against here? If you can expose this amount of cruelty and they all want to defend it. And the government didn't do anything about it. We did a full report, as you can imagine. And we did to the RSPCA and nothing happened, just nothing like you just intimated. And this was 2017. The thing that did happen was the farm accused us of making it all up and they actually released false footage. Can you believe this? of people in bio suits sort of running across their farm, which wasn't us. Um, quite incredible, the lengths that they went to. And they spent £50,000, which is a lot of money, on upping their security. <laughs> so so what we achieved at that point was creating a Fort Knox, you know, sort of a bigger prison for these. But I just thought, no, you know, fuck it, excuse my language, but we're not leaving this. So we went back the following year. Um, having had to teach yourself certain tactics of how the hell you get into a place like this. And we did, we got back in. But I had to make the decision to actually call off the investigation because the pigs were in such a bad way and we called a vet uh, and the police, we called the police. And so we didn't get all the footage that we had planned on, but a pig, you know, for example, was being literally cannibalised in front of us and we, we couldn't just stand there and film I know some people do do that and they make excuses uh, or reasons, I should say. Um, but I just I just couldn't. So I needed that pig to be put out of her misery. And so um, time rolls on and we thought, OK, the security's got even even more severe. And um, we uh, were getting a lot of publicity for the campaign, though. So in the meantime, I should say we were doing what we call Viva Days of Action. And by that, we actually um, organise actions outside all of the stores on the same day. And we've got amazing supporters across the UK who give up their time, obviously, completely free of charge. And will jump, if you like, when we say this really needs doing. And so um, the other thing that we we're doing was taking inside the stores on iPads. We were taking the footage to the individual store managers. And of course, they're just human, too. And they were as shocked as you would be or anybody else. And they didn't like what their own board of directors was saying, which was basically try and sweep this one under the carpet because the publicity was just going against Tesco and nobody liked what was being approved of. Anyway, cut the story short, 2019, we managed to go back in again. Only this time we left cameras all over the place. Um, and that was what made Tesco withdraw because surprise, surprise, we filmed days worth of animals being assaulted, but also people just continually hitting the animals. And Tesco had nowhere to go with that. How, how can anyone excuse that? Um, and more importantly, nobody's heard of Cranswick, but they're actually huge, one of the biggest um, pork suppliers in the UK. And they supplied them too. And both Tesco, Cranswick dropped Hogwood and said they would permanently never take them back. 
and so did Red Tractor. Um, and so we had a huge impact. And the reason that I decided, right, okay, this can't just end here, we have to make a documentary, was because over those three years, the one of the things, because we did the, the face-off I was telling you about, we would go to major cities and show the public the footage. So we'd get people from every walk of life watching this footage um, and people crying who were out and out meat eaters, um, including men, you know, and, and, and the biggest question they would say is how can this be legal in the UK? Aren't we a civilized nation? And people genuinely were perplexed by how this was allowed to go on and trying to explain to people that this is actually legal and that farmed animals have almost zero protection. And I thought we need a documentary actually going out because most of the documentaries on farmed animals are American or Australian, uh, mostly American. And there's very little that was British. And so I thought, you know, you know what it's like. I'm sure you get the same, but people sweep it under the carpet like it's not on my doorstep. Therefore, it's not relevant to here. It sort of happens by, you know, Johnny Foreigner over there. So I wanted to show them, no, this is typical and show them all the excuses Tesco gave and that this was just a typical factory farm. It wasn't an aberration, it was a mega farm and approved over and over and over and over. Um, and you're right, there's a, um, we have um, pre all the channels, you know, all hundreds of channels you got today, you have four main channels in the UK and one is called Channel 4. And they have a documentary program called, called Dispatches, and they just went in to destroy Viva and protect Hogwood. Um, and it was called the documentary, if anyone wants to look it up, called The Truth About Vegans. Uh, the thing is, it completely backfired on them because they actually used our footage and showed what we filmed. And that was enough for the public to put them onto our side because it was literally that horrible and that powerful. So everything their vet was saying, well, this is normal. People were just more shocked than ever that a vet sat there saying this is okay. So in fact, we got donations, we got messages of support, we got no criticism whatsoever. They couldn't have more spectacularly backfired actually. So it just fed into the whole thing. Um, and I, uh, by the way, before I forget, I've got some really good news because we wanted Hogwood to go into Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime and Google Play, and sorry, Google and Apple Play. Um, and finally, see, Netflix said it's not a global documentary, it's too British. And now they have taken it for the whole of the EU, including Britain, and it launches on Netflix in March 2022, which gives it a whole new, bigger audience. So I'm so thrilled about that. <laughs> Oh, Brilliant. that is fantastic. That's so great to hear. And totally, you know, it's not just a British issue at all. I actually went vegan when I saw what was happening to pigs here in New Zealand that, like you say, I didn't think that happened here. It's in lesser developed countries. So absolutely. But it's absolutely mind blowing what you've achieved um, with Hogwarts, you know, already. Um, I was walking along, listening to a speech that you gave. And when you were saying about how, you know, Hogwarts got shut down and Tesco and everybody dropped them. And I was just bawling, walking along. Heaven knows what other people must have thought. Oh. But the, the impact of, of what you've done already. And, um, you know, at the time of recording now, we've um, we've just had the awesome news that, you know, the UK has... Um, animals within the UK have now been formally recognised as sentient, which is fantastic. But I have to admit, sort of here in New Zealand, it still causes us a bit of concern because everyone's celebrating and, and we're like over here, well, 
we've had a similar bill in this country for a few years now and it actually means very little for animals within certainly the agricultural industry uh, as well as others so although it's still early days how do you hope that this bill will affect the advocacy for the animals in the UK? Well in fact the bill hasn't come into being yet we've just done um, um, a submission with our comments on the bill and in fact we the UK was obviously as you know part of the EU until very recently um, and the EU already um, had part of the Lisbon Treaty was that animals were recognised as sentient which I think came into force around 2009 it was a long time ago and to be completely honest with you um, exactly the same in the UK it made no difference whatsoever to farmed animals so part of our submission to this animal sentience bill is has been to say I mean I actually wrote it that part myself saying um you know that, that really what is the point in this bill unless um you you are you enable the right departments and the law to in to enact those the animal sentience bill so if you're going to recognize that these animals suffer and feel pain which ultimately is really what it's all about um then what are we allowed to actually do about that when we find that these animals, these sentient animals are suffering and they are in pain? Because under the EU regulations, we could do nothing. It meant nothing. So I'm afraid I am a bit sceptical about these things, again, just through experience, that they're a little bit of a PR job. The governments, you know, like the current government will say, oh, we're amazing because we're introducing this bill. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, when we were in the EU, which you bloody well brought us out of, we already recognised sentience and it didn't do anything at all. You know, what are you doing above and beyond? And in the current bill, nothing. So, yeah, you have to take it all with a little bit of a pinch of salt and read between the lines, if you like. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realise that in the EU, yeah, it was, it was already recognised as sentience. But yeah, as I say, you know, it, it goes to show what it means for these farmed animals when they don't enact the actual laws with it. That's just words, so, isn't it? Yeah. Just yeah. Exactly. But with that recognition of sentience, it's the acceptance that animals experience feelings in the same way that humans do. And one of the things that really shot me deeply when I was researching about Hogwood was... Uh, when you're talking about the the mental trauma that many of the pigs were facing there from being hundreds of them forced into confined areas and not being able to move or sleep um, and empathizing with that mental trauma it, it really struck at my sort of heartstrings and stuff like that and I was wondering is it something that you found effective in communicating uh, to non-vegans you know uh, that whole idea of the mental trauma that animals are going through yeah, I, it struck me when I went into Hogwood because it was particularly overcrowded. The, fir the very first shed that I went into, there was no sort of like gangway and there weren't an individual cells where often you have 30, 40 pigs in, in each cell. This was just the whole, you know, shed was just covered in pigs. So they literally had nowhere to go. And I just watched them because we were in there 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. And it just really struck me. It's something nobody ever talks about is exactly what you've just said is that mental trauma of constantly being overcrowded so that when you want to sleep at night, you can't because somebody stands on you. And I just was watching them. They were so overcrowded that they would get up and just stand on somebody else's stomach and you know, they'd jolt up. So they could never get a good quality sleep. And at the time I'd rescued with Dean Farm Sanctuary, literally, actually, because of Hogwood, I went to my friends who run the sanctuary, Janet and Mary and said, I actually have to rescue some pigs because 
you know, this is playing sort of a personal toll. And that was a Tuesday night. I always remember this, that I went to see them. And on the Sunday, we were rescuing a mother pig who had had her fifth pregnancy and she had six three-week-old babies. And this pig farm was closing down. And we took and through, uh, we did a naming competition to Hope Apple Blossom the mum. And we named all the babies like Lily Bubbles and Jack Wigginson and so on. And um, so I had the privilege, the true privilege of getting to know how pigs should behave, if you like, when they're left to their own devices as a family. And the contrast of seeing, you know, the family would sleep deep and long, you know, in the nights in their deep straw beds. Um, and seeing these animals so overcrowded in such a state. And the other thing that really struck me, which is really hard to get across on a leaflet, um, unless you're actually there, was these animals were only about three months old in the shed that I was talking about. And there's this nebulous sense of them, this brightness still in their eyes. They still had hope. They still had optimism. They still had energy. They, there was still that feeling that something's better than this. And I found that absolutely heartbreaking, heartbreaking, knowing what they were going to. Don't make me cry. As well. <laughs> oh, it just gets me, you know, I, I can't. Yeah, I'm just amazed, you know, everything that you must have seen and me just hearing about it. Crikey. Compose yourself, Jack. <laughs> I was even bringing me to the edge and it to, um, you know, to put it in other terms as well, even when we, you know, see our domesticated um, companion animals, a lot of us with dogs and cats and stuff like that, you know, you understand that they have a personality, you understand that they have different, um, there's that depth to the, even them. So it's just putting them through any sort of trauma, you know, we we bulk at it, but it's that whole um, speciesism that, you know, people don't realize that's happening with pigs. And yeah. I, I pigs, as everyone will know who follows the series, are one of my all time favorite animals. I absolutely love them. And just the, the amount of character that so many of them embody. And it's just, yeah, just hearing about that, that hope you saw in their eyes is just. Exactly. And we're crying. I mean, we know what sleep deprivation does to humans. It's, mm. you know, it's just absolutely how it's, I think how it's... Just mention while I remember, because a lot of people don't know this, that the University of Cambridge had this gathering of neurobiologists, neuroscientists from various countries back in 2012. And they actually agreed on a statement which was quite incredible for the times. You have to remember that it's relatively recently when I did my degree in zoology, literally you would have lecturers talking about animals if they were as if they were mechanical beings, you know, like an engineering project and things have changed so much in such a short time. So in 2012, you know, they came forward with a statement saying that all, you know, vertebrates have the um, substrate for consciousness, because the reason that I'm saying this is that even today, even when you get people saying, oh, I like cats or I like dogs, they doubt that they're somehow as conscious as we are. And something that I point out, there's a lovely book you probably heard of by Jeffrey Masson called Dogs Never Lie About Love. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a perfect title um, because they don't. They are pure in that giving of that love. And the thing that I, my experience, and I'm sure millions of people experience with dogs, you give them a good home and you give them your love is that they are in fact more emotional than we are and it's really strange that as a species we try and deny other mammals as if they 
somehow don't feel the way we feel when in fact, in fact what Jeffrey Masson was arguing in his book was that in fact dogs feel more intensely than we do and I think it's absolutely true you know I used to have a dog called Charlie and if I just said you know the word because he was so into his walks I know pretty much all dogs are but he was an nth degree into his walks and you know you got to the point where you just you start trying to spell them out and trying to get around it if you were talking to somebody because the excitement and the intensity of the excitement was incredible and I remember thinking Jesus Christ I wish I could feel that way about certain things you know my point being you know that we are so dismissive the homo sapiens as a species towards other species but in fact that's just purely our own ignorance. I'm reading another book that is amazing at the moment by another biologist, but it's about evolution in essence. And it's about the, the relationship of the microorganisms in our guts of which we have trillions, of course, um, of thousands of different species with our mental health. And of course it reminds you that the evolution of all life in this planet comes from microorganisms and all the chemicals that we see as being so sophisticated, like neurotransmitters in our brain, for example, come from microorganisms. And I found it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I'm really getting into trees and forests at the moment. How one of the main transmitters between trees and the forest roots through the fungi is exactly the same neurotransmitter as one of the main ones in our brain. And this, I suppose my point is, is that all life is connected. And for us to dismiss other life, as if they have no consciousnesses beyond ridiculous. And quite frankly, if anybody listening to this thinks that, then you're just ignorant and stupid. And I know you're not supposed to say things like that, but I really believe it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. We've got three rescue chickens, haven't we, here? Um, and we just, I never gave chickens credit before, you know, for having such individual personalities. <laughs> they and, are little characters. <laughs> yeah, you know, they really are. And, and, and when we went um, vegan, we, we raised a, an orphan lamb, you know, and again, I, I heard somebody just a couple of days ago who kept sheep saying, oh, God, I don't want to keep sheep anymore. They're just stupid. And I was like, they're not stupid at all. You obviously haven't spent any time with them, you know, like they're very, very individual and very intelligent, you know, but I digress, but you know, <laughs> an aspect we love about Viva is, is your hard hitting campaigns, which are also backed up with what steps to take afterwards. And in an interview that you did with uh, with Robbie Lockie, who we love from Plant Based News, loved how you said right early on, you know, when when you spoke about going vegetarian, how do you do something when you don't know anything? when describing those early stages in your own journey and uh, a discussion point that we've had ourselves recently that keeps coming up is that common tagline of go vegan and how little these words actually mean to someone who has no idea about veganism you know can we really expect people to just magically and instantly go vegan if we don't give them the steps or the knowledge on how to do that um again you know it's like with the animal sentience being it's, it's meaningless words if you have no concept or, or no idea of what it's about so how important is it that we actually in our campaigns with those bridging systems in place for those who are impacted by it um so i think i mean one of the things about viva is it's not about um trying to beat people you know with the whip it's much more the carrot approach and i think but at the same time we're not afraid of telling the truth um when i formed viva i had quite a lot of um debates with people and sometimes arguments because they would say 
oh, you've got to tone this down. You can't show people this. And I was like, no, if we back off telling people the truth, who, who is, who's going to, who's going to do it? And we were proud of the whole vegan, you know, word and what it meant. And people saying, no, you can't use the word vegan. It scares people. But I think somebody's got to stand up in society for what the truth is and what it means. And, and as long as you have the right approach. So Viva, although we work on incredibly, incredibly difficult issues, you know, the very poignant issues, we try to be very upbeat as an organization and welcome everybody in. And so we do exactly, you know, what you're talking about in terms of, we develop um, a whole lifestyle aspect of Viva, which is very welcoming to meat eaters. And one of the things that does sadden me about our movement is it, it, it does attract people that become very fervent and actually are very off-putting to meat eaters sometimes. Um, and it's almost like they forget who it is that they're trying to protect. And th th there are there is a certain element of people that seem they, they it's almost like they want to be seen as being um better than everybody else and and are just so prepared to put everybody else down oh you're not vegan because you buy from a unilever or you're not vegan you know this kind of throwing out the insults which doesn't really help anything and beaver is not that so we're non-judgmental and we recognize you know i was brought up as a meat eater meat egg fish the whole lot um and most people are and so you the point is through our campaigns and our education and our lifestyle section what we try and figure out is what will help people change and so accusatory tones don't help that so for example one of the most recent things we've done there's a lot of um, one month programs so through our research we found that actually that was too much for a lot of meat eaters or at least they thought it was so we've developed v7 which is going vegan for one week which is basically one supermarket shop so we research it and we talk to meat eaters all the time. We don't see them as the enemy. We see them as precisely the opposite as our friends to be. Uh, and I think it's that shift in attitude and remembering what you were like when you weren't vegan as well and what your journey was. Um, so like I said before, you know, I didn't instantly turn vegan. I, I was vegetarian first. Um, and that journey and what were my obstacles? What were your obstacles? What generally out there are the obstacles? In fact, we're doing a campaign on that, like exactly that, the obstacles later this year. So, you know, it's acknowledging what the reality is and then helping people. I mean, I have found, and I'm sure you have, that the vast majority of the public hate animal cruelty. So it's about getting them to acknowledge that what happens for meat and eggs and dairy, et cetera, to get to their plate, a lot of sufferings happened that's the real challenge as you well know it, it's not that they're not get you know it's not that they want cruelty but really deep in their hearts they know cruelty is involved which is why they resist actually watching your stuff because they know they're going to have to confront something in themselves that's quite deep so we're always go finding ways around that of how we get people into viva and how we get them to look at something watch something which is why we work from all the main aspects. We work on health and nutrition, we work on the environment, and of course we work on animals. And we have, we're very careful with each campaign about who, who we aim that at so that we're bringing in as many people as possible. So for example, we're working towards a campaign on health, nutrition, and sport. Um, and we're deliberately aiming that campaign at men aged 18 to 30, because there's so many role models out there to help that campaign now. But, you know, we think these things through and think, how do we reel people in um, so that they're not afraid anymore to confront what is reality and change themselves? 
and yeah we found we found that that works a much more positive approach stop the podcast we would like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners viva viva are experts on vegan health nutrition recipes lifestyle and campaigning noisily and effectively to save animals on our planet want to go vegan and be a champion for the animals everything you need is right here head on over to viva.org.uk to learn more now back to the podcast we actually loved uh, yeah your approach on everything and that's this why we adore viva and, and all your incredible work yeah absolutely and I, you know i think you're, you're so right i mean we, we've often sort of said like hardly you know we didn't realize when we went vegan that it was a competition but uh, yeah <laughs> yes yeah exactly exactly <laughs> all you can do is your best and like you say remember who yeah. we're doing it for I mean that's such a such a great reminder and um you know you yourself you've led so many incredible campaigns for making things better for for farmed animals but also you know the kangaroos even the crocodile meat industry um you know for, for me the screen campaign in 1987 is actually one that ties into my journey into vegetarianism and eventually veganism i was so excited i didn't realize it was you oh <laughs> my goodness me i grew up in, i grew up in the uk and i read the miz and the Jess 17 and all of those oh and I, I was an avid reader and i actually went that was when i went vegetarian and i said to mum to my mum i said i'm interviewing the lady that got me to go vegetarian <laughs> and she said oh please tell her I'm really sorry that I kept trying to make chicken for you and sausage rolls and all your favorite things because you know back then she thought well was, you know, she, she said well you didn't you, you tell her you didn't eat enough vegetables at that time <laughs> needless to say now she doesn't have that worry an awful lot of vegetables <laughs> so oh. um, so thank you for that that was that was you know mind-blowing and it's it's just yeah it's so awesome you just never know on this on this wonderful journey how these seeds get planted and who's going to plant them and, and it's it's just awesome so thank you um you oh, know for, for turning amazing. that light on I, I remember the screen campaign very well and also vivisection as well you know that was very um very ch changing to me and i'm so glad that when you found out that you spoke out because i grow i grew up in a an area that was surrounded by cows so even mm. though I went vegetarian, I still thought all I could see were these these cows around me that were peacefully grazing. And I still thought, well, you know, by not eating you, I'm not harming you in any way. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm just so glad for people like you that actually made the choice to and, and had that drive to go and find out the truth and find out what was really going on behind those those peaceful paddocks but in a previous episode we uh, we spoke with captain paul watson of sea shepherd and he spoke on how different advocacy was going back 10 20 years ago uh i, rem <laughs> I remember this awful stuff called sauce mix when i went vegetarian it was you know like this yeah crumbly stuff that you'd mix with water and, and turn into sausages so uh, things have definitely changed you know but but obviously i'm half a world away now um and these days we're all interconnected by the internet but simultaneously disconnected with the reality of many things. Do you think that advocacy is any easier now or is it actually harder with how technology and society has evolved? I think it's easier overall from a campaigning organization's point of view. Like you were saying before, when Viva investigated before social media, we were completely reliant on national papers placing an exclusive. And of course, we, we were pretty good at it, to be honest. But nevertheless, you know, you had your one hit in a national newspaper. We couldn't afford national press advertising because you were talking about £20,000 for a full page to have any real impact. And as anyone who knows anything about advertising knows, 
you know you have to keep at it to have a real impact so you have to have huge budgets which of course the the the, the meat industry did have so they had a complete monopoly in terms of propaganda that they were pumping out and then everything changed with social media suddenly there was a much more even playing field so for us for investigations it was when we did um i mentioned before the face-off so i went into something called bird brothers ironically um which was enrichment cages so the battery cage was banned in the uk years ago but they just replaced it very cynically with an enrichment cage so bigger cages more birds and so i was filming that only talk to camera about it and other websites like um, the best video you'll ever see shared it and it just went viral. Um, we could never have done that pre-social media and we were onto something then and we found ways and started to understand social media such that we were getting really big, big, big audiences for what we were putting out and we've become pretty polished at it actually in terms of using social media to reach very large audiences and targeting those audiences. So I'd say in terms of reaching what we, you know, our main audience in the UK, of course, is meat reducers. So people who have already made some decision that they don't want to eat meat every day for what, there has to be a reason for that. They've made some conscious decision. So we're looking at millions, many millions of people in the UK who've made that choice. So they're our main audience. So we, social media is, a, you know, it's a gift to us in terms of reaching those people from environment, obviously the animals and um, health for certain people too. Um, so easier. In terms of the actual street actions and everything, I'd say it's, you know, things go in phases and cycles. So it's, it's weird. You get like cycles where, um, for example, protests and marches are very popular. They're totally in vogue. And then they go completely out of vogue and nobody turns up and then they come back in again. So it's kind of cyclical. I don't think that's got anything to do with social media at all. It's something completely separate. Um, social media is a tool, obviously, you can use to promote them. But um, nevertheless, those cycles still happen. Uh, we went through, as I'm sure you have, you know, for example, where street actions suddenly became very in vogue with older teenagers and people in their 20s which was fantastic where people were doing the cube and all that kind of stuff and it spilled out into aviva because we've always done street actions we're almost 30 years old now um and but so that helped us so so um, there's something that's less defined about why those actual people on the streets goes in and out of fashion um and why marches going out of fashion i think that's always going to be the case but even when you're doing traditional advertising like we've just done a billboard campaign which is traditional advertising uh, with Save a Baby, a picture of a very sweet, innocent lamb. Um, it, it just says some people actually eat them, uh, but you don't have to, saveababy.com. Um, uh, you know, social media helps that because you're promoting what you're doing through traditional media, through social media, and you end up with a way bigger reach. So definitely, I'd say it's got easier. Mm. Yeah, it's a fantastic tool for all of us advocates, and I, I hope all of our audience here are making full use of our social media platforms to help share some of these things, and it's incredible what can be done um, from that, and Definitely. you've had a plethora of uh, campaigns tackling a whole range of topics. When we're doing the research for this, we were like, what ones do we want to go into and talk about? Because there are so many great ones, um, like Convert a Parent. We absolutely, Convert a Parent. Yeah, that's a fantastic one. Uh, your most recent one, Save a Baby. One thing we'd love to know is how do you go about choosing a topic for some of these campaigns? Is it a case of sometimes following a passion or is it more case in uh, charting out what is the most efficient strategy? 
yeah do you find do you find them or do they find you kind of thing I think I think both because you know I could give you an example um convert a parent which you're going you know you just talked about the reason that we did that you you're for something like convert a parent what you're doing is or what we were doing then was looking for something that would grab national attention, but not just the national press. We wanted all the regionals involved. To get regionals involved, you have to give regional stories and have regional people. But actually, um, I don't know if it's the same way you are, but we find that the actual engagement from an audience is higher in a regional paper because they're more invested in their own area than from a national paper. In other words, if you're asking them to do something, you get more uptake from regional papers. So they're very important. So with Convert a Parent, we deliberately went for something that was relatively controversial, um, which was actually telling children to convert their parents and encouraging them to do so. Uh, obviously, we well, not obviously, but for that, then the strategy comes into place. You know what you look at, what criticism you're going to get. Um, so before that even starts, you've thought of all that. So we had experts writing guides on every single issue. So it was all coming from experts, you know, not from not from Viva. Um, so you produce all the information that you can and then you're contacting all the regionals and you have teenagers, as it was in our case, in every region, asking them um, would they speak to the media about converting or trying to convert their parents. And in some of those regions, we had these amazing radio debates between the child, who was often about 13, 14, with the parent. And you can imagine the parent being put on the spot on media in a way that they've probably never really thought about before, because they've probably, in the vast majority of cases, kind of dismissed what their child was saying. Having to actually defend what they were doing on air was quite mind-blowing, because most parents suddenly changed. So it was incredibly effective. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it other times it's topical. You know, something is happening in the world. BSE is an obvious example of that. So nobody in the UK was actually helping the public change. So we look, we were only two years old as an organisation. Um, I'm sure people thought we were way bigger than we were, punching way above our weight. And we, do, we produced a national BSE helpline um, and basically got people in free of charge and experts backing up in terms of the advice we were putting out and got national publicity for it. So sometimes you're responding to something that's happening out there. And other times you're wanting to push the agenda and take things forward. So veganism itself, when I set up Viva, you know, veganism was kind of the dirty word. And so I thought in terms of way would by this point say, been trying to get people to change for 10 years and on our 10th anniversary said, okay, we're actually gonna, for the first time, actually go out there and do festivals. This sounds really weird now because everywhere does festivals, even the smallest town, but we were the first people to actually have vegan festivals. And we had almost one a month. We ran them like a military operation. Uh, it took almost every member of staff and they were quite time consuming. But we'd have a huge proportion of our entry, a third to a half were meat eaters. So we thought all that through and we were pushing, pushing, pushing the agenda forward, trying to make veganism acceptable. So sometimes you've got, you know, it depends what you're trying to achieve ultimately. You know, sometimes an organisation might be trying to end factory farming. Sometimes they might be getting people to reduce meat. In our case, we're always trying to get people to go vegan. We've always been, you know, very upfront about that. That's always been our aim. So even if we do a campaign, you know, that say against a specific, you know, part of factory farming, like the farrowing crate, our call will very clearly say, 
you know, all these cruelties will still happen so long as people eat these animals because they're always going to be exploited. If it's not the firing crate, it's something else. You know, you have to change yourself. And the whole face-off campaign was about that. That was, again, new, new, new. nobody had done that in the UK. We were the first to film to camera. And it was saying, you have to take responsibility for your own actions. You know, you can't keep expecting somebody else to take responsibility for you. You know, you're an adult, you know, don't rely on the government. They ain't going to change anything. You have to change yourself. And that that really did resonate with people very well, actually. That's so true. It's a great way of looking at it as well. Um, you know, we understand that you yourself have previously, um, previously studied direct marketing as well to help take the vegan message to the public. Has educating yourself in this area proven to be a useful asset in your advocacy? And would you recommend others look into similar courses? Yeah, I do. I think I think um, if you if you're working for a national organisation, especially, I think it's essential. You have to understand how to reach people, but also it's also how to spend donations effectively. You know, you don't just throw it away. If something's not working, we just stop it and we will move to something and, and trial that. And then when we find something that works or it, let's just simplify it, um, a video that works, for example, on YouTube. And we know that we're getting, because you can look at something like the number of people that are actually bothering to watch it through to the end. If something's not being watched through to the end, we drop it. If it is being watched through to the end, we divert our funds into that and reach many more people. And, and we watch it really carefully. So it is important that you do know what you're doing um, and you research what actually impacts on the public. Otherwise, kind of you're wasting a bit of your time, aren't you? So... Yeah, I did. I did. After my zoology degree, I did um, direct marketing two year course. And then way later, I did a three year nutritional therapy. The reason that I did that was because the most talks, public speaking, I mean, um, tended to be health based for obvious reasons. A lot of people, you know, when you're saying I'll come and tell you how terrible factory farming is, you don't get the invites to the kind of places you want to get invited to, which are meaty, you know, full of meat eaters. And that's where I wanted to be. There's no point in keep speaking to vegans. Um, so I decided, right, I'm going to become an expert in that. And um, the reason I did nutritional therapy as opposed to nutrition was because I wanted to learn how to get people well, how to actually be a therapist. And I sort of, you know, did that for a while as well. But it was just, it was just too much. I, I, I reverted to just directing Viva. But having done that three-year course, which was obviously my weekend time, um, it was enormously helpful in terms of taking the Viva Health side forward and all the public speaking um, and having that all round knowledge. So I'd say, yeah, you can't be an expert in everything though. I'd say choose what interests you, you know, and, and become known in that sphere and take it forward. Um, it's important to, you know, uh, I suppose pick out your own talents, recognize what they are and harness them. Um, and try not to, like we were saying before, try not to be afraid. Just go for it. You only got one life as well, and life's bloody short. So just go for it. Well, that's uh, that's some great advice there. And yeah, it's something we've seen so true throughout this series is having people follow their passions and invest into those passions to be the most effective advocates that they can be. Because um, you're always going to do something better when you're really passionate about mm -hmm. it. So. It absolutely fills us with joy and happiness every time we see another Viva campaign pop up. Um, and you're doing so much all over, like currently with the Save a Baby, you're taking over the, I believe, the northwest of England at the moment with your bill billboards in 40 locations. I love the um, tagline as well. You know, some people actually eat this. It's like, 
Oh, that's quite jarring, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, I know. Because, I mean, like, you know, everybody, whatever their diet, when they go past that field with the sheep with the baby lambs and those lambs are gambling along, everybody practically oohs and ahs and says how beautiful they are. And it just, that's why we did the face-off where I was talking to camera, because all it takes is for somebody to say to them, which those billboards are, some people actually eat them. It's immediately saying to them, what the are you doing you you really love these animals you do you wouldn't take the knife to their throat so what are you doing and it's the same with the face off because I could talk to camera I was legitimizing all the emotions in the viewer and I think that's why they became so popular um people just need what they know legitimizing and and that can be enough for millions of people to change and of course, with veganism becoming so popular now, that is hugely helpful because <laughs> it means we can say you can get, you know, uh, the vegan menu in da, 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 all the lists of restaurants now because it's practically every national chain. Um, that's hugely helpful. People are running out of excuses why they wouldn't be vegan. So, yeah, I mean, I do see um, I do see that we are heading towards um certainly a plant-based future very rapidly because of environmental issues um, being so very, very, very serious in terms of wildlife loss, which is animal, people who care about animals, the biggest cause of wildlife loss, of course, is consuming farmed animals. I do see that, you know, some of the world's most eminent scientists and um, richest people actually, and industry behind the scenes are very actively talking about getting cultured meat, for example, which is, of course, it's not our answer because it's, it is meat, in effect, it's identical. But from in terms of saving billions of animals' lives and protecting the environment and no more antibiotics used, so no more, you know, if we can do it in time, not getting the antibiotic resistance, there's so many reasons why the, why the industries are gonna invest in cultured meat and um, plant-based alternatives. But I think the next decade is going to be one of the most dynamic times in human history, actually. And I think we're going to see the biggest changes that ever imaginable. And it will happen really quickly as too, I think. So definitely a very bright future ahead yes, for us, hopefully. And um, yeah, like so um, you've had so many fantastic campaigns. Is there a campaign we should be getting right behind right now? And um, what's next for Viva? Um, one of the big campaigns that we're working on is called is very simply vegannow.uk is the uh, website um, and we're producing a lot of stuff I hope you like it um, we're launching it next week actually it's a film called The Oracle which is two minutes it, it, it is a beautiful film it's very high production value you've got to watch it. it's very cinematic um, it's very engaging and it's basically the oracle is this algorithm that's embedded within planet earth and she releases this message to the human race because the earth is on her way out unless we do something about it and of course it relates veganism to being one of the main solutions so please do watch that next week it's called the oracle um and you will see it on vegannow.uk um and we are taking that out to the public through you know the usual various routes and there are lots of things that are spinning out from that, like we're doing um, 
La Burger Tour, which is basically, as you can imagine, very kindly Naked Glory, um, which is a vegan burger company, have donated thousands of burgers to us and actually delivering them to each city. So we're giving free of charge, you know, vegan burgers to the public. So it's that education through the stomach, which we find works really well at street level. Um, but also we're producing an animation part of Vegan Now, which is really, really good. It's very, very impactful. It's kind of got a dark sense of humour to it as well, which I think will appeal a lot to a younger audience. Um, I won't describe it, but we're launching that in July as well. And we, we've got putting a lot behind it. And we're, we're hoping we've got um, some television companies who may be showing it free of charge. So... We have this kind of lot coming out of that. And the other thing that we're doing later in the year is we're crowdfunding to do a TV ad. And it's an amazing TV ad, which is very animal focused. It won't surprise you being Viva, Viva, you know, the, if we're going to do a TV ad, it has to be for the animals. That's the main issue. So um, I'm really excited about that. We're going to launch that next year after Hogwarts gone on to Netflix. So we're obviously building up excitement about that and then going into launching this TV ad. So, so much happening. <laughs> It's Brilliant. awesome. It makes me want to be in the UK. Like I want to, I want to come and hang out with you guys and be in the UK. <laughs> so, what's the main thing happening with you guys over there? What, what would you see as sort of like the most exciting campaign at the moment? Or oh, crikey, we've got a new campaign in the works at the moment that we're hoping to get into towards the end of the year, which we we can't talk about it just yet because it's still oh. in the uh, <laughs> still in the nuts and bolts stage at the moment, but. Um, yeah. We're uh, we're just about to finish uh, finish this series in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll be into it. So so we'll have something hopefully big to bring to you. And also, this will be coming out in a podcast format as well. So that's one thing. Uh, hopefully, then people can get through and uh, listen to it all the way through because we understand that with these episodes being about an hour long, it could be it can be one of those things that you could don't watch all the way through to the end. So bringing out an audio format is going to be one of the next things but yeah big campaign in the works yeah look yeah, we're telling you about it very excited about your <laughs> campaign so and everything that happened at viva and um for our viewers this episode should be out and oracle should be out at the same time then um because it'll be a lot of time before i finish yeah. editing yeah, this right but, at the same time so yeah but you're ready to go watch it and we'll have links to everything with this okay, cool. uh, is there anywhere else that you want um our followers to go check out um, the one of the things that people actually enjoy the most, of course, because it's inspiration, is Vegan Recipe Club, which is veganrecipeclub.org.uk, because it's got over a thousand recipes, and it's um, just about to relaunch that this Friday, completely redone, revamped, a free app on people's phones. Um, but um, I'm just thinking in terms of what we're doing. I suppose the other major thing I'd like you to mention is end factory farming before it ends us. I'm sure you've heard about that. There are so many facets to that campaign, which is a very long-term campaign. And we have loads of different investigations feeding into that message. Um, obviously with the pandemic, it's a really, really relevant message as well. But we are going on to things like antibiotic resistance with it. But obviously the, the main tenet of it is the cruelty that happens to the animals themselves. Um, so on the Viva website, it's viva.org.uk forward slash EFF, so for end factory farming. Um, if people can have a look at that and look at how they can join in. The other thing is like with saveababy.com, if you go onto a site, it's not gory or gruesome. In fact, the pictures are quite beautiful. What you'll find is things like social media graphics that you can share if you just scroll down. So we'd love people to just share the images because they're totally relevant worldwide. 
That's awesome. I was just thinking, talking to you, you know, about having seen the, the Save a Baby billboard, you know, I was thinking, wow, I, I want to put something like that on my, my Facebook cover photo. It's oh, just such a great image. Yay. <laughs> and and, and the, the recipe is vegan recipe. Veganrecipeclub.org.uk. I did not know about that before. I need to go and check that out. So, Julia, yeah, you, you've, you've said you know life is too short you have filled so much into yours already and made such a difference even even little old me sitting here from back in 1987 so oh, thank I'm you so, so, so much. happy you said that oh god I can remember being there in my 20s launching that campaign um it was so big back then because nobody talked to teenagers like that it was seen as being so controversial um yeah it was it was manic we had I can remember nine months after the campaign I decided to count the letters that were coming in from mainly teenagers and we were still getting 500 to 900 letters handwritten every day so yeah it had a big impact thank you for listening to this interview we hope you found it informative and entertaining to learn more about Juliet's work check out viva.org.uk once again, be sure to follow us on our social media pages for future episodes. And if you're enjoying our content, please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. <laughs>